gentlemen welcome to the second episode of the rounding the earth roundtable podcast as a reminder rounding the earth is a popular newsletter series published on substack written by applied statistician and educator matthew crawford topics of discussion range from critical analysis of conventional wisdom uh, to bitcoin and everything in between and of course more recently the covid19 pandemic our goal is a careful examination of important topics and perspectives shaping the world that too few people talk about. Subscribe to Rounding the Earth on Substack, Rumble, and YouTube to join a burgeoning research community and to help us unflatten the Earth. My name is Liam Sturgis. I'm a musician, music producer, and writer slash editor coming to you live from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and I will be your host for today. But without further ado, please allow me to introduce introduce the author of Rounding the Earth and my co-host for the podcast, Matthew Crawford. Matthew, how you doing? Thanks. I'm, I'm great. How are you? I'm doing very well. How have you found the feedback to be for our first show that happened last week? All good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Chris, I think a lot uh, of people... Jessica and Chris were great, you know, um, great people to have on for a, a first discussion. They're both so brilliant. And uh, we're lucky today to have another very brilliant uh, biologist with us. Yes, we are. So let's use that opportunity to introduce uh, our guest. Please welcome JJ Cooey. Hello. Thank you guys for inviting me to be on the show. Um, I, I squirm when I hear the word brilliant, uh, but thank <laughs> you very much. I'm humbled. Uh, yeah, uh, humble, humble is the right word for you. But uh, I'm going to say this to anybody out there. Um, I have learned more from uh, from Jay uh, about biology during the pandemic than any other one human being in the world. And that includes the fact that uh, I'm married to a biologist. <laughs> um, but when, whenever I've had questions for Jonathan, I've been able to call him on the phone and, and he's taken uh, an hour, hour and a half to to walk through details of things that are not easy uh, to, to understand. And um, and before other people were aware or understood them, uh, which was very impressive. Well, thanks. I'm glad uh, somebody heard me. I'm not yelling into a, a five-gallon bucket, at least. That's good. I'm always happy when you when you call. I'm sure it felt like you were yelling into a, a five-gallon bucket at the start of things, but luckily, it, it really looks as though a lot more people are interested in the kind of things you got to say. Would you say that's the case? Yeah. I mean, I was actually yelling down the hallways of a medical school in Pittsburgh, but but it ended up being the effectively a five-gallon bucket. Um but uh, there's still some videos on YouTube that documented. Unfortunately, I think the algorithm couldn't reject some of those videos because they are just kind of covering papers that were already in, in PubMed and quietly hinting at the fact that they added up to something. Mm. Um, and so in a, in a, in a way, I've, I've just avoided YouTube because I don't want to lose that as an archive and as a evidence of what I started. And so I just moved to other places. But So the JC on a bike is still on YouTube? Yeah, it definitely is. Yeah, it's, and, uh, it's, uh, and and I watched these videos long before we'd ever met. Um, before we had talked to each other uh, or been in chat groups. Um, JC on a uh, you know this is John Jay is JC on a bike, and he, if you have seen those videos, you might have seen them early in the pandemic. He was one of the only people talking about the origins of SARS-CoV-2 and the possibility that those uh, origins were not zoonotic. And yep. uh, YouTube eventually censored some of that. 
some of it, but actually surprisingly, you know, only the 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 parts that discuss the 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 countermeasures. As long as I was discussing the virus, though, none of those videos, the earliest videos that I did that covered Dan and Carl Sorotkin's papers and early review that they did on, on Harvard to the Big House, that that was really the initial inspiration. I mean, I'm not going to take credit for it in the sense of of having realized it myself. If you want my honest, my, what honestly happened in, in January was a was a casual realization that something weird was happening in China and a casual joking in my head that we used to joke about this all the time in Rotterdam. So where I used to work and I don't know if you want to start there, but. Um, well, before we get started there, yeah, I think we've got a really interesting clip to share. You just gave a presentation oh. to a certain committee and uh, Matthew suggested we show that to folks to give a sense of your, uh, well, what you have to say. So if you don't mind. Oh I'm no, please go up. ahead. So let's hear this. I'd like to welcome and thank our public comment speakers for addressing the committee today. All the speakers today submitted a request in advance of the meeting and the final list of public commenters was determined via a lottery. For our speakers today, we have a limited public comment period. Um, and in order to make it through all of the listed speakers, it's extremely important. Each speaker limits his, her, or their remarks to three minutes. Uh, we have a timer on display on the screen so you know how much time you have left. And as a general reminder, our committee appreciates diverse viewpoints that are respectful in nature and focused on the issues being discussed during our two-day meeting. We want to thank our speakers again, and we look forward to your comments. Um, our first public comment speaker is Mr. Jonathan Cooey. Uh, hello, can you hear me? We can. Please go ahead. Thank you. My name is Jonathan Cooey, and I have no conflicts of interest. The ethical principle of informed consent has been effectively ignored for the duration of the pandemic. The FDA and the CDC long ago failed to meet their responsibility to ensure informed consent in those healthy adults who have been already transfected, most egregiously in the healthy college students and teens for whom there was never an emergency. The CDC and FDA failed again just days ago to provide the opportunity for informed consent, this time for parents of children under five when recommending transfection as safe and effective. After nearly two years of calling transfection by lipid nanoparticle an investigative vaccine, you have failed to provide informed consent by pushing a false equivalence between transfection and traditional live attenuated and recombinant vaccines. You have failed to, to inform the public that transfection, the expression of a viral protein by injection of synthetic RNA, is a highly variable and tissue-dependent process that we are unsure can provoke meaningful immune memory, the goal of any vaccination. You have failed to notify the public of the potential for autoimmunity while also failing to look for this known downside of this technique. The FDA have no data to support recommending transfection for any healthy human in 2022. After more than two years, you have failed to inform the public that you know the studies upon which these recommendations are based are woefully underpowered. In place of informed consent, you have pushed the vague concepts of safe and effective until they were devoid of meaning. The studies used to specifically recommend transfection to the under five age group are statistical jokes without clinically meaningful endpoints. You know immunobridging to non-inferiority is useless. Do your job. Of course, the CDC, NIH, and NIAD also failed to inform the public that they knew 
late in 2019 that the virus had already several key molecular aspects that indicated both its origin and the many known countermeasures that would be expected to work. Instead, they said they knew nothing, they could see nothing unusual, and that our immune systems were equally vulnerable and you ran with it. Data from your own presentations demonstrate the vast majority of kids have been infected, a primary counterindication for the administration of any vaccine before 2020. You are pushing products under the guise of a regulatory framework that we know by your actions is pro forma only. You failed to inform the public that you know from studying influenza and other viruses that the developing immune system is an impossibly complicated process that involves imprinting mechanisms that cannot be reversed. The catalog of molecular immune memories that protects us for a lifetime is formed through the countless exposures of pathogens in our childhood, and you have failed to inform the public that you know that transfection to a 2020 viral coat protein cannot be useful in augmenting this process. You know it will not meaningfully protect these children because there is a planet worth of data informing you of this. It's biology. Please get some and then do your job. Do your job. Do your job. So, I like the part best about the the their the slides from their own presentation show that more than eighty percent of the kids are previously infected, and that was a counterindication for vaccination prior to the start of the pandemic. It's really an important point to make because even by their own crappy measures, all of these kids have been exposed more than once. Actually, so it's really absurd. So in that video, you talk a little bit about the origins of SARS-CoV-2, and and let's uh, broach that discussion with um, with a picture. Uh, I think you're going to recognize this picture. So uh, you've seen this one before, yeah, sure. <clears throat> um, so this is uh, from a paper that came out very early on during the pandemic that compared the SARS-CoV-2 genome. Uh, nucleotide by nucleotide with um, other coronaviruses that were found in, in you know, different animals. And you can see that the blue up at the top is the closest match. And uh, was, was the blue just bat coronaviruses or was it bat and snake or like bat or snake? I can't remember. Oh, from the best of my knowledge, though, that's, that's already pushing me. This is an older, older paper, but I think it's mostly bat. I think mm -hmm. it's only bat. I don't know. Yeah, one way or another, what we can see is that for most of the genome, SARS-CoV-2 has a high level of match with, with some, some coronaviruses that are found in nature. Okay, so high level, high level, even, even with the other uh, coronaviruses that live in other animals, it, it's mostly a pretty good match, okay? But then you get to this one part, the spike protein. And the spike protein screams, I'm not found in nature anywhere. So I wanted to I wanted to say that myself and then pass it to you and see how you respond to to that. Um, well, thanks. Uh, I think this is the best way um, to segue into where the most mature <clears throat> helicopter view of where I think I am with with respect to the pandemic. And I, I, I think the best way to think about it is in terms of how the NIH and NIAID tend to spend their money. And as a neuroscientist, um, I'm vaguely familiar with the kinds of intellectual hoops that you need to jump through in order to get money. And I'll give you an example from neuroscience, and then I'll try to paint what I think 
is the best example of the intellectual cage from which this whole pandemic emerged. So I think in neuroscience, a good example would be Alzheimer's disease. And Alzheimer's has an enormous amount of funding that's going primarily to neuroscientists. And in order to get that funding, you need to stay within certain hypothetical frameworks within your with which your within which your hypotheses should be framed. You shouldn't be investigating whether or not Alzheimer's disease is caused by 5G towers if you want to get funding from the NIH and NIAID because there are no grants which are written to fund that. And so if you want to study Alzheimer's and you're a guy like me and you do cellular neurophysiology, then you need to do it in the brain region where Alzheimer's is suspected to start, which where, where, where I was in, in entorhinal cortex. And then you want to look at some of the things that are already thought to happen and check them with your work. So they think that the connectivity and entorhinal cortex starts to deteriorate and those cells start to die first. So if you can make an, an Alzheimer's disease model that would recapitulate that somehow, and then look at how you might be able to restore that connectivity or <clears throat> explore how that the destruction of that connectivity spreads through that structure, then this is a legitimate, fundable grant application under the rubrics that they've already described in the grant call. So you're not just coming up with Jay's great idea on what Alzheimer's disease is, or you're never going to get money from the U.S. government. And so now if I switch this to coronavirus, where I've come to at this stage is I've been trying to, to reverse engineer this in my head. What would the actual grant call have been? And the only thing I haven't been able to do because I haven't put enough energy into it is find those previous grant calls with FOIA requests or something like that. I suspect they're already published somewhere, so they're going to be able to tell us that we can't help you because it's already there. You have to find it yourself. But anyway... The grant call that describes this work most likely describes the following. We would like you to make an animal model which recapitulates some or all of the respiratory disease and systemic disease associated with a SARS-like coronavirus infection. And we would like you to build, construct, engineer a, a experimental model which can recapitulate the following idea. We would take a single immunogen, that's the, ner the, the name that they use often in these grant proposals and these, these layman discussions for the protein that they're going to use in the vaccine. We're going to have one protein from this virus be the key. And now understand that Fauci's been, and his groups have been working on finding that key protein or, or key sequence that would instruct the immune system to create a viral eliminating immune state mostly measurable through seropurans and we know now from the pandemic and and that's what i'm trying to expose all the time that this is nonsense but that doesn't change the fact that the nih and the nia idea have been funding research to the tune of billions of dollars to investigate this as a correlate of immunity and to use it as a way of constructing this experimental model of disease. And that requires, and this would have been in a grant proposal, an animal model that recapitulates it, a, a, a protein candidate selected from either nature's bouquet of proteins or from an engineered protein or both. And then that animal model of disease has to show significant 
experimentally measurable or quantifiable immune resistance as a result of the immunization to that protein. Now, so the idea is that the NIH and the NIAID have this I have this concept of how immunity should work or a concept framework of how they can get from point A to point B, which would be products and patents and, and new. Right, new right. Products. It's not just a concept. It's a concept that links to products. Yes. And so this, this, this whole, this whole thing, I believe involves patents. And so you're always going out in nature to looking for new genes so that you can potentially patent new combinations of them. You can go back into the patent stuff and see that that's what they do because you can't patent nature, but once you mix it together in a way you didn't find it, now it's not nature anymore. And so you can patent it. Bill, uh, Ralph Barrick's the guy, but the point would be again, that there must've been grants that specifically called for these various you know, humanized animal models of disease and countermeasures to them. So it could have been protein, small protein inhibitors. It could have been monoclonal antibodies, anything. And many of these projects would have been classified under a military standpoint. So they're not even in the normal literature. The data is not even out there probably. So, yeah, you know, let's talk about two things. Um, one, um, I, I want to talk about this, the um, small protein inhibitors. Um I, I want to discuss whether or not it is possible to just create an antidote to to the virus. Um, but second, um, let's talk about the Diffuse Project. Tell us about that. Um, the Diffuse Project is a, a DOD submitted grant application, which was released or, or leaked, I guess, to one Charles Rixey, um, a member of Drastic and a friend of mine and yours. Um, and it's a proposal that was uh, submitted, which describes a series of experiments, which goes far and beyond anything that I just described to you. And it goes, goes very in detail, describing some experiments which would find viruses in the wild. It would isolate their spike protein. It would insert humanized um, furin cleavage sites into those spike proteins. And then also focused on if you go underneath that part you'll see that they also focus on other um other universal epitopes for the t-cell receptor and for dendritic cell stimulation like dc sign that's also listed in that diffuse pros proposal and and they um, wanted to use viruses as vaccines is that's that right? right they were going to spray them into the bat caves and and inoculate the bats against the sars like viruses that they said were likely to go pandemic as a way of getting rid of those viruses but of course we now have learned from our own experiment on our own people that most likely what they would have done is enrich the virulence of those viruses in a very rapid nasty way so i don't know if you were going to go here or not but the important thing for people listening to this about this diffuse proposal is you don't submit scientific proposals that you haven't don't already know are going to work not at this level and so that's the the way that nih grants work in general you have to have data for basically every aim that you're going to accomplish otherwise you won't get funded because they're not going to take the risk that you can't even get it so that you can't even do what you say you're going to do so in order for them to get this funded they would have to have experimental data that showed that they could achieve all of these endpoints not even some of them but all of them and so that's that's really crucial to understanding how this proposal would have gone forward there's there's no way 
to fund this unless they're not already admitted. Oh, okay. They're so representing that they've already done it. That's otherwise they wouldn't propose this. That's so by applying for this, EcoHealth Alliance was saying we have the technology to do this to create a SARS coronavirus um, with uh, ACE two receptor binding specifically, and add, right? And, and, and add, yeah, and adding fewer and cleavage sites that are human optimized. Yes, absolutely. Adding fewer, fewer and cleavage sites. Okay, so. Uh, Liam, were you going to ask? Yeah, well, so 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 to, to try to contextualize all of this with some of the people who are aware of what what all this is, but need a, a bit of a timeline. So we understand uh, at this point that um, so there's a relation, obviously, between the original SARS virus that came about in the public in around 2002, 2003 and the SARS-CoV-2 virus, broadly speaking, that we refer to now. First of all, am I correct in, in asserting that? Um. It's uh, it's triggering me. Um, let me oh see if no! I can quick, get a get a slide here. Um, is this well, it? In the yeah. Meantime, so let me let me just put this this slide up, and then you. I don't know if I'm. I'm gonna go over here quick. Yeah. Um, this 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 is what I would say. Um, so. If you have to understand that if you believe the the coronavirus pandemic as it is now, don't don't get me wrong. I'm not telling you that there aren't viruses. That would be insane. I'm not telling you that there wasn't a coronavirus in 2020 that was killing people around the world. I'm not saying that either. Right. But what I am saying is that the narrative structure which holds up what's happening right now is based on things like this. The first one is coronaviruses were notoriously hard to uh, to study until the discovery of SARS like coronaviruses, which can be cultured. So that's a truth. We could not culture any of the human coronaviruses that we, up until 2020, blamed for up to 35% of all the respiratory disease in elderly people every year. We couldn't, and we still cannot. That's the reason why we cannot accurately sequence for them in people who are sick, because we can't culture them. So it's very hard to catch them. And in fact, the worst part is, is two of the genes that they're using to use in PCR tests for the SARS-like coronaviruses are superly homologous to the, the, the same proteins in, in the human coronaviruses that we know to be circulating from, from, from long ago. And so the problem with that is, is that two of the genes were likely to come up positive, irrespective of whether this specific spike protein was present from the very beginning. But okay, that's because, and you have to remember this, there were always coronaviruses. In some early medical textbooks from the 90s, I have text where it says that these respiratory diseases in, in elderly people are caused by up to 200 different coronaviruses. So this, this whole concept of what coronavirus as a swarm is as it as it moves through the human population has changed enormously especially at the start of this pandemic where it became a sort of exact science where we're measuring for the presence of one while not acknowledging that previous to this there were many and that's disingenuous given the 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 horrible this is number three but the horrible pcr products that they're using to diagnose which we know don't have controls for any of these other 
coronaviruses, which have a high potential for producing a false positive, an enormously high potential, especially okay. in a world where we now call um, as protein dropout, just Omicron. It's shocking. So anyway, my point is that your assumption that you just said is, do I have to go back? Maybe I have to go back. Sorry. The assumption that you just said is that the virus that was released in 2002 or three, and then three times in 2004, and then however many times since have always just petered out and disappeared. But that's not what that I know that there are virologists out there who will agree with me that that's not what happened. The coronavirus swarm in humans is a very complex thing to try and understand for the fact that the four most abundant ones are impossible to culture and difficult to track. So okay. the whole trick here. Can we, can we talk about the swarm for a second? Sure. Uh, so this, this is a concept and I'd, I'd never heard of the quasi species swarm. Um, and this is the way that it's referred to in the literature. I've read a few papers now, um, you know, maybe about 10, um, trying to, to get a toehold on, on the concept. Um, and I don't even know how old this concept is, but um, you know, we each have a virome, like a birome, like, sorry, like a biome. Uh, is that correct? Like we, we always have, you know, viruses in us and, and perhaps, perhaps most of the time we have coronaviruses in us. Like our body is just used to handling ones that we've been exposed to. And maybe they only harm us if our cells are getting old and aged and, um, you know, not up to capacity for handling the interplay between uh, the viruses and ourselves. So we have this, you know, this sort of cloud, you know, this this virus aura or something like that. Um, not, not, I'm not saying that it's not like a, a radiation, but um, it, we we have these viruses in us, and some of those are coronaviruses that we that we come in contact with, or sometimes, or maybe maybe it's not even that we maybe we always have coronaviruses, but sometimes we come in contact with one when we get a, a cold that is uh, a little bit less um, well known to our system or something like that. Now along comes SARS-CoV-2, and it enters the swarm. And now it, it's not the only coronavirus there. It's part of this interplay with the ones that we're used to. Now, here's a question. Have you seen the research out of Raoult's lab in France, um, where going from the original strain to alpha to delta, I believe, that detection required lower PCR cycles. It went from 25.6 to 22.6 to 19.6. And I, I was looking at that and I wanted to pass an interpretation by you. You know, okay, that would mean that um, you know, three cycles down, every cycle down you go, it means you have twice as much virus present, twice as much viral load. So that's from, from the original strain to detection of alpha, there was eight times as much alpha uh, in, in each person who was getting sick, and then 64 times as much as from the original strain uh, delta as from the original yeah, strain. Yeah, I think this is part of the illusion, right? So, so is, is that like penetrating into that cloud of virus that's in us and getting to be a little bit more of it as it goes? No, it's even worse than that, Matthew, because PCR is not that accurate. <sighs> So you can't, you know, even depending on there at one point in the, in the pandemic, there were 250 different PCR testing products in America. And so each of those PCR products did not agree to use all the same primers. So each of them is going to have a different, 
threshold specificity for the virus at any given state in its evolution. And so the, the effective detection, let's say, sensitivity of those is going up and down independently of each other as the virus is changing through time. And so I feel like some of these <clears throat> some of these studies are just that they're based on the idea that the PCR means something, but the difference between a cycle 20 of cycle 25 and cycle 27 in in mathematical terms is very big, but in reality at the at the first start so maybe that's what you've got to think about first is that if you had if you had inside this jar of stuff you don't want to amplify with your PCR you had one little tiny strip of mRNA left from from a SARS infection and you wanted to amplify that you would swab in there and then well first you got to get lucky and get it right because you could swab in lots of places and not get this one mRNA but if you get it on your swab and then you put it in the tube and you you use the RT-PCR, the reverse transcriptase to go from RNA to DNA, and then you flip it over and you put the primers in and you start amplifying this one single DNA still has to meet the right primers and get amplified. And it might not happen the first cycle might not happen the second cycle because there's a lot of other garbage that's in there that got amplified in the initial step and be and depending on how much rna got turned to dna in that first step so that you then could start the pcr this one little viral dna that you're interested in amplifying might just not be there for a while and it might show up later but if you start thinking about having lots of copies after infection but the same thing can happen if you miss sample or if you miss amplify that you have a very small amount in there or a very large amount, these differences are become more random in my mind. And unless you're talking about orders of, you know, like 10 cycles versus 25 cycles, it's not really meaningful. Okay, and well, let me toss that back. Um, uh, Raul's lab, so th these are all coming out of the same lab. And when I see um, that they're coming out of the same lab, I think consistency. And consistency helps me trust result better. Okay, right. you don't I, I have them there, do you? I mean, you're. I'm. I'm happy to help you look at it because I could be wrong. And and you know, my guess is that they're not using you know 200 different PCR products, uh, given that it's one lab, um, and that they seem pretty dedicated to doing this. Um, so uh, you know, I, I wanted to throw that out and just sort of you know ask the question: Is it possible that the SARS coves are growing as a proportion of the swarm? of viruses and is that part of the reason why maybe younger people seem to be able to get infected i don't know if you've seen this curve but you know through 2020 like something like uh, 30 to 40 percent of the people getting um covid 19 in the us were in nursing homes whereas by february of 2021 that was no longer the case it was only about five percent and from that point onward it's never been above like four or five percent it's been younger and younger people getting covid 19 infections and I just wanted to uh, see what you would say about the possibility that maybe a greater proportion of the swarm that is just ever present that we're passing around now is SARS-CoV-2. Is that a reasonable possibility? I think that's absolutely reasonable. Um, I don't know if you guys are still conscious from 2019, but in 2019, I was sick twice, very, very violently ill. Um, I didn't ride for like four days and I was under the covers shivering and 
had a very bad yucky kind of cough um but when it went away i knew it went away and and i rode through it and then it went away permanently but um there's almost no doubt that there was a significant portion of the existing swarm before 2019 that was made up of SARS-related viruses because the seroprevalence in Washington, in California, in New York, in Italy, in Spain, those were all way above zero. They were like 25% when measured. So that that to me is the only data that we have, but it's it's also just impossible for me to imagine given the fact that we've never started to track any previous pandemic with mass, you know, sweeping PCR tests before, it's just impossible for me to believe that these many releases have resulted in no background SARS viruses. It's just not possible. And the fact of the matter is the evidence of the first one disappearing isn't there. It's just that if it stops causing severe disease where people go to the hospital, you stop tracking it. And they never talked about, the last thing I'll say is they never talked about asymptomatic transmission for these previous outbreaks and these previous laboratory leaks. And so they just assume that because the symptomatic disease that they can track from the, the chain of infection for is gone, that the, the virus itself has disappeared. But that's absurd. And that's the reason why the ethical skeptic has, for example, shown that there's some basic geographical uh, correlation between China and where the Chinese diaspora live and the relative amount of cases because they all have previous immunity because those viruses are more or less indigenous to or, or are endemic to, to Asia. And that's also why they think um, these certain weird places uh, did surprisingly well. And the correlation is pretty impressive that he's shown. And I don't think it's crazy. It, it would be the way that any of these dual use programs would have worked if you were, you know, the UN and 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 lots of other statements to the UN have warned about the possibility of, of ethnically or genetically targeted viruses. And the way to do that on a very simple, simple way, just like we did with the supposedly did with the Native Americans at the at the start of America, just give people blankets of viruses they haven't had. And so the way to do that would be to harvest some wild stuff in your own backyard and take it to someone else's backyard. I mean, so to me, this is there's 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 so much smoke and mirrors in terms of how accurate they are and how much they know about what's going on. And it's all based on the fact that before 2020, there was nothing and nothing worth tracking, nothing worth testing for asymptomatically. And now they're going to try and test you for everything. Maybe they need to test you for RSV soon. Or Okay, well, you know what? Um, now I'm going to be a little suspicious. Go ahead. Um, so they, they clearly were interested almost immediately in asymptomatic carriers. Maybe that's a sign, right? If, if um, SARS-CoV-2 was known to or expected to sort of creep into the viral swarm and then be able to move down the chain in ages and in fact younger and younger people with a higher and higher frequency as has taken place then you would think hey uh that group would want to be measuring asymptomatics to understand the progression of the virus if i can jump in and throw my own skepticism into the ring 
what you just described, Matt. Uh, so all of this does make sense, at least in in theory, from a uh, you know from the the virology standpoint. But I want to I want to point out the the great work of Dr. Denny Rancourt, who from the get go I now understand was trying to look at this from from intentionally not the virological standpoint. And long story short, he proposes a very sound and very well um, a very well evidenced. Um, Basically, no virus was required to enact the kind of health-related damage on uh, populations that, just like with the pre-existing immunity that you bring up, Jay, so too was there a correlation with the public health measures that were taken. And for example, in the United States, there was a direct correlation between the stronger a state uh, intervened, uh, the more deaths there were. And yes, in fact, it was mostly in nursing homes. So then we get to, all right, but we're now talking about younger and younger kids going. So there must be, a, a, you know, a, a reason within the virus that we can understand. And I think that's that's true. But at the same time, something else has changed over time. And that is the age groups that are receiving a certain medical product that is very closely related to exactly the thing we're talking about. So I personally, I propose there's it's both of those things. I, I think it's a combination. But I just want to I wanted to put that. It's interesting when people, there are some folks who very much think there's no virus at all. And, and I say, then go read Denny Ranker's work because you don't, you don't need a virus for that. Um, but what do, you, what do you make of that curveball? I don't think it's, I mean, I'm not, I don't think I'm disagreeing with you at all, actually. Um, I think that, that that's the reason why um, when they rolled out the PCR tests everywhere, they were getting positives because there is a background and and that background can test positive and and they can be false positives they can be real positives in the sense that again this pcr tests especially at the stage of the early the first year or so when we were still doing pcr to insane cycles uh insane number of cycles we can't ever forget that 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 there may be a way of of designing a pcr test with controls and accurate accurate enough primers aimed at the the unique portions of, of these different viruses where we could imagine a theoretical product that could screen and track you know live viral infection and 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 past viral infection as well as they purport to be doing now but they're really not doing that they're just they're they're not tracking anything it's the only thing they're looking for so of course they're finding it i mean if they were really trying to separate the effects of this virus from all of these others that we we have previously designated as from a public health perspective harmless then there's something there's something dubious happening right now and if i could throw this in about uh pcr um people who may have you know looked up pcr and read about it uh at the outset of the pandemic pcr is mostly used under laboratory conditions to um to be able to detect genetic sequences and when you have laboratory clean conditions, you don't have as likelihood of two sequences matching at one of these endpoints that gets picked out with 18 to 24 nucleotide sequences. You know, 18 to 20, you know, uh, uh, four to the 18th power is already an enormous number. It's in the trillions. Um, so, the, the, you know, it would be very unusual to get another sequence that would result in a false positive. Um, uh, there, there are false positives, but once you go out into the broader environment and and you're going into this cloud of coronaviruses, 
you're more likely to get something which you might call an off-target amplicon, meaning something that is not the target sequence that you wanted, but winds up getting amplified by the PCR cycles and then doubling, doubling, doubling in, um, in detectable presence. That's correct. And, and you know, the, the, the proponents of the tests will argue that they can show you examples of where they where they cycle out to 55 and they don't get a false positive and they'll show you examples of uh, false positives that they can tech, detect by the slope of the appearance of the of the fluorescence so if the primers aren't aren't specific for example if you think of it like a chemical reaction then you can imagine a scenario where the the equilibrium per per uh round of temperatures if you don't understand how that works just very briefly the they take advantage of these uh, these enzymes that they found in hot springs they can still copy dna um not copy dna but they can still stay folded even though they go above warmer temperatures and so what they do then is take advantage of the fact that when you heat dna it separates so they copy the the RNA out of the virus into a into a DNA, and then they start PCR, which has PC uh, which has primers, very small pieces of single stranded DNA that are aimed at a target sequence, and that target sequence is purported to be taken from different genes in the viral genome. So if you have a whole virus in your nose, then in theory, that RNA that's curled up around the end protein can be amplified into a piece of DNA, and then they can use those primers to see if they'll stick to the parts that they predict will be there if you're infected. And so then what happens is that they put those primers in, and the primers latch on to a single-stranded DNA, and then they have this enzyme from this bacteria, which can stand the heat, copy the rest of this through. So now you have a, a strip of DNA, a the, the target sequence that's this long and then you heat it and it opens up and then you bring it down to temperature so that the primers that are all over the place many many copies of those primers then anneal to both of those new pieces and so then when you put it at the right temperature you copy it now you have two then you heat it all the way up so that those two separate now you have four single stranded and because there's so many primers around when you cool it down the primers bind and then you can let the enzyme copy them up. Now you have four double-stranded, then you heat it, and those separate into eight, and then you can cool it down, and the primers bind, and then you can get 1632, blah, blah, blah. So the, the specificity of this is really something that if you used it in an academic setting, you would have to prove in so many different ways that you're not getting a false positive, that it doesn't, you know, that it's very specific for the RNA that you're supposedly gonna amplify. And just to be sure, you can look it up on my my. And, and and your false positive rate depends on the environment. Yes, it depends on the environment, and it and that's something on people are used to. Present, like, just to give you an example from academia, in my neuron paper from two thousand seven or eight, whichever it is, we pulled single neurons out of a slice with a out of a slice with a microscopic needle and then put those in the bottom of a sterile uh, Eppendorf tube by breaking the very tip of the glass off of this pipette and then dissolving and trying to pull RNA out of a single neuron. And it took me two years to get to the point where we had the primers that were positive when they were positive and showed alternative 
slopes or, or really long cycle counts if they were negative. So let me ask a couple of questions here. So it, it, tell me if I'm correct in saying this. Uh, it, with the same PCR test, if I go from one country to another I'm uh, during the same time of year, all that, I'm going to get a different false positive rate potentially. If I even go from one household to another within the same country, there's a very good chance that I get a different false positive rate per test in that household. Is that correct? I doubt you'd ever be able to show that. Um, Both or either one? I don't know. Either one. I mean, it's just uh, the, the statistical analysis that I understand best show a, a horrible dependence on the prevalence of the virus in the background. So if you're testing on a background of people that are healthy and not to be sick, then the, the false positive rate will be through the roof. And if you're testing in a group of people that is likely to be sick and shows symptoms of it, then the false positive rate collapses. Oh, and this is exactly what I'm saying is, is that, uh, it, you know, when you change the terrain, you change the pulse, the false positive rate. Yeah. But I think that's only from, in my imagination, that's only a big numbers thing. It's not an individual thing that would affect you individually. Um, because you would still, if you're if you're a strong positive with one of these PCRs on all three, three, and they did it like three times, I would be reasonably convinced that you have some of this RNA that they're looking for. I, I but if you had no symptoms and it was very high number, then what would I say? I don't know. I mean, it's that's the problem with this. Yeah, I think we're on the same page. Uh, so if I could move us to a different topic. Sure. Um, I'd like to talk about the spike protein a little bit because uh, every time I talk about it with you, I learn a little bit more about it. Um, so the spike protein uh, has these two pieces and they fit together in a particular way. And I'd like you to talk about that a little bit and, and to, to explain you know, what that means and how that makes it different than something we normally experience um okay well <clears throat> then maybe i would i would start here sorry i'm gonna get out of here I'm trying to go down to this one um so the spike protein is not actually that different from other spike proteins that we know and in fact that's one of the things that makes it very interesting um we're calling it a spike protein here but actually on aids we just call it a glycoprotein and on other protein or on other viruses we call it other things but all all viruses have some protein on the outside which is designed to help it dock with the tissues that it wants to infect they don't all have to be called spike proteins but they've chosen spike for coronavirus and that's great um but this is a triplet um protein so it's a protein that has three parts which which and not three parts excuse me but when they are folded and on the outside of the virus, three separate sequences of S2 and S1 are intertwined in this manner and then can unlock in a, in a, in a certain way where certain parts of the protein become free when they are cleaved. And that's what we're talking about with furin cleavage. The reason why furin cleavage is so interesting is because when the spike protein is cut, the, the conformational change that occurs is a kind of elongation which exposes a hydrophobic end, that means afraid of water, hydrophobic end of the protein which is protected in this closed configuration but exposed in the open configuration. And so if there's a membrane nearby when the protein uh, adopts this configuration, then this 
hydrophobic end will escape the water and go into the the lipid bilayer of the of the membrane that it finds and that's what initiates either endosomal entry which is this one where it gets taken in by an endosome that's a that's like a reverse vesicle kind of thing or it's direct um, release of the RNA into the cytoplasm which can also occur and one of the illusions that I think is happening in the pandemic is the implication that the that the percentage of this you know which one happens more often this one or this one i think it's much more often this one and that's the reason why hydrochloroquine works um and and, and they don't really have a lot of data in the literature describing the percentage of of docking mechanisms that they think are at play here and i think that's a good reason to understand why a lot of these general happy drugs work is because there's a lot of there's a lot more let's say natural physiological examples of where an endosome is used to bring something into a cell where there are very few examples of where there's membrane to membrane and then just dumping of stuff in there's usually a screening process that occurs and so this is much more likely to occur and then so the point would be number one that uh, i can go back here if you want one that um well, I can still point, so leave it like this. This is good. Oh, sorry. Um, the, the point would be that, number one, if you've had an infection, um, let me go back one. So it, what's happening after you're infected is that notice this is a nature paper, and they're describing what happens after the virus is replicated and goes upon release. The release is also occurring in an endosome, like in that picture before. It's not a virus budding off of the surface of the of the cell and forming a virus at the last moment like you would imagine if it was following this procedure backwards but instead it's released endosomally and i argue oftentimes on my stream that they are making a they're making you're allowing them to make a big assumption when you they tell you that it's almost all this kind of entry what i think happens is this is what you see is that the initial infection in the upper respiratory tract is ACE2 dependent, but when those cells are making new viruses, they're releasing viruses that have furin cleavage sites already cut. What that means is that the cells are releasing viruses to the deeper lungs that don't need ACE2 because they're already in this open position. And so if you want to avoid this deep lung infection, you need hydrochloroquine to block that endosomal entry. And that's what I think hydrochloroquine with, with a prophylactic treatment is so effective because it's essentially blocking the deep lung infection, blocking it from going from upper respiratory to systemic because that's how it would do that. <laughs> Does that make sense? Um, that's a question you asked or not? Or Well, it's not. That's the start of the question that you asked. So Yeah, there are a lot of places we can go here. Um, we definitely can. You tell me where you want to go. One of the things that I've been curious about is the hinge. And then yeah. I want to talk about um, uh, how well known or well understood there are solutions to this. You know, what is the hinge and why does it matter? Um, the hinge is interesting because um, it can reset. And so if you've had a previous infection and you make antibodies to a portion of this spike protein, um, in the open configuration, and then you get reinfected, the viruses that are produced in your lungs, and that's again, I'll go back here, are released with the furin cleavage site cut, and rather than spontaneously closing to protect the hydrophobic end, because that's what they will do, 
they because if they're floating around in the water and that's hydrophobic then it's got a pressure to change back to this this more comfortable conformation where it's protected it doesn't happen immediately it's still loose it's still the cleavage site is still cut but the 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 bottom line is from a 3d perspective from a electrostatic perspective it's going to be more stable in the closed position and it'll assume that position but if you've had a previous infection and you've made antibodies to that open position, then when you release these cut spike protein covered viruses, they will get stabilized by the vaccine or, well, it could be transfection induced antibodies, which are to this part of the spike protein that your body would never or normally focus on. So, so and then it'll be stabilized open, you see. So what you don't want is for your body to go through this process of reconfiguring over and over again. Right. And 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 the, the body has already solved that problem. And, and that's how they, they know that already from previous coronavirus research, that if we are infected with the four endemic coronaviruses, most of us don't even produce seroprevalence that's, that's detectable. And so yeah. that's also a problem for them, right? That's that's that was also the 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 information that I keep. I have tried to say often, but, you know, it's never going to make it to the news is that's what made coronavirus so attractive as a biotechnology, because it's like a, a silent, a silent symbiont, you know, and if you could use them as a way of carrying information and implanting information or trafficking in genetic information for medical purposes, why not? And they, they are unique organism and not organism but they're a unique virus in that sense that, that they don't provoke our immune system that we largely exist in symbiosis with them and and furthermore they're really hard to culture so they had to search in nature to find one that they could play with and and since 2002 they've been doing that, that that's the best example we have here and we know this is something that Charles Rixey has gathered a lot of information about, but we know that when they find a furin cleavage site in the vaccine virus that they're going to use for flu next year, they destroy the whole batch. We know that they they have used furin cleavage as a way of, of getting rid of or expanding the tissue dependence of a virus because, again, this they understand. They understand if they can get the virus they can get the virus past this part. Why isn't it doing it? Right? They can get so, the virus past the initial infection, then they can get you tissue A specificity because once the furin cleavage site is cut, it doesn't need a particular target receptor anymore. And that's the reason why a furin cleavage site in any virus is potentially dangerous, especially if it's a furin cleavage site that's especially specific for your species. It would be different if it was a furin cleavage site that you know, our enzymes kind of cut like crap because it's not the right, totally the right sequence, but we kind of recognize it. But it's an, a human optimized furin cleavage site in a place where it's optimally useful to create the to create the fusion. And and worse yet, it's not found in any in any coronavirus in the wild, but that's okay. found in grant so, applications. That's a problem. So so we had this known information that having a furin cleavage site within a vaccine was just a bad idea that, that that was potentially very harmful to the body and we did it anyway so i, I actually want to list this out there's a list of things that, that bother me about the vaccines on on fundamental developmental principle you know one is that no 
coronavirus vaccine had ever worked. Two is we'd never had uh, one of these mRNA vaccines work. Also correct. And, and a sub note of that is, is that it, it, we have also never been able to develop a therapy where we express an endogenous protein with this technology and have it work. So an, an example um, that was pointed out to me that was actually used in a Moderna lady talk that I, I covered a month ago or so, she presents the possibility that they are trialing mRNA as a way of fixing von Gerke's disease where a specific starch processing enzyme is missing. And even better, the enzyme is missing in the liver where the liver nano or where the lipid nanoparticles like to go. And so Moderna has been testing this. Well, lo and behold, if you go into the trials, you find that they had to stop the trial because the first dose was great, but the second dose caused acute liver disease and, and, and hepatitis and a massive immune attack um, on, on the liver itself. And it, the, the, the trial had to be stopped. So she actually presented that like a month ago as a trial ongoing, when in reality, I don't think it is ongoing anymore. And that was the best case lipid nanoparticle, like best case scenario, because it goes, the, the target that you want to hit is the liver. And that's where lipid nanoparticles like to go. So they work, they've been sold as a lipid targeting delivery mechanism for 20 years. So it's perfect. It's in the liver. It's the enzyme is already endogenous. So it shouldn't be something that would provoke an immune response. But of course, these kids don't have that enzyme. So they haven't, they haven't selected for, for this as a, as a, as a self protein in their in their thymus so that's a very big point here because then they're really expressing a non-endogenous protein in these kids because they don't have it and if they have a malfunctioning one then it's still a different one so we don't know really why the 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 immune system responded the way it did because they're not going to investigate it but we know for sure that they expressed an endogenous protein as best we can tell in those kids livers that they needed and the second shot already, they had to stop it. So the, the transfection doesn't work like they purport it to work. And certainly not if you're trying to instruct the immune system about a foreign protein. They can't even instruct the liver about an endogenous one. So that's a huge step beyond what they've already tried to do and fail. You know, that, that's, that difference really needs to be underscored because it's not just an investigational vaccine because the the lower hanging fruit of what this technology should have been able to capture has not been captured. It just hasn't. And so it is really overrepresenting the potential of this, uh, of this technology. It's shocking really. So uh, here's another uh, direction uh, for discussion with, with relation to this virus. So uh, it, within nucleotide sequences, three nucleotides, um, make up a codon, and uh, several of these codons together uh, begin to, well, and each codon produces an amino acid. And an amino acid, uh, the, these amino acids form into chains, long chains of amino acids we call proteins, and then there are these shorter chains that we call peptides. And that's really that, you know, there, there's no maybe exact dividing line, or, or maybe maybe there is, but we just sort of, um, you know, decided to to create that line. But anyway, we've got you know, smaller peptides, chains of amino acids, and larger proteins. So we, we've got the, the glycoprotein. 
And now th there's, there's a method that is understood and known by some biologists that you've taught me about. Um, and not that I uh, understand it yet, but that peptides can be made to interact with the spike protein. Uh, has anybody sought to create something like a peptide solution to this uh, virus? I don't oh, know if I, I mean, asked that question well. Maybe you can uh, you can rephrase the discussion for us. Well, I mean, first, you just don't don't underestimate how effective monoclonal antibodies probably still are and probably could may, be made to be. Um, I think that that technology is just not cost effective from the billion or trillion dollar perspective. It's a pretty much break even kind of thing where we could save anyone if we wanted to and spend the money to do it. And we could probably use that technology and then let nature do it for us. So you would just be screening everybody that's convalescent for, you know, very specific broad antibodies that they, they know how to find these because that's how they have looked for the sequences that matter up until the pandemic is look at the antibody complements in these infected animals and screen for epitopes that are recognized by animal after animal after animal and then focusing their 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 investigation into the function of that particular portion of that viral protein that's how they've done it for decades so they have two you know, ways of screening what the immune system thinks is important. And that's about it. And one of them is what antibodies does the, does the animal produce? They can also look at T cell specificity, but the problem with T cells is, is they recognize a shorter sequence. So they're actually less specific than antibodies at, at some level. And so it's really important for the body to make a specific T cell memory and to eliminate the aspecific or the self T cell memory because the sequences are shorter. So they have more potential for, you know, going wrong if they're not adequately screened. Whereas the B cells have a whole nother, they have a whole nother enrichment, genetic uh, enrichment process that occurs separately after a B cell clone has really been identified as a useful one. Then the next time it gets activated, it it has a way of shuffling its genes and, and optimizing its affinity for the new version of the target that it recognized before. And the T cells tend not to do that as far as we know. There are, there are immunologists who propose that it's just because we can't follow T cells so we don't know. But I've been, I've been tempted a lot of times to follow that argument. But it's, I think we have to give credit to T cells only for what we know and what we already know is enough and then not try to overshoot with that. If, if it turns yeah. out that they also enrich, that's fine. This whole antibody detection thing, it seems like a cheat. It's like, okay, this is the part of the immune system that we can better detect. Therefore, it's the one thing that we're going to base our assumption of efficacy on. Without I mean, I really believe that this is no more different than a Theranos thing, because this is a, with a drop of your blood. They are one step away from saying with a drop of your blood, we can give you a COVID-19 passport and you can travel all through the EU and we'll take your blood in a year and we'll certify you again. And it is absurd. It's really absurd because whatever, whatever things that they pull out of your blood are just not sufficient to indicate the state of your immune system, the memory that you've, you've developed, because the body can't have antibodies as the primary layer of protection that would just be a disaster in your blood. Like think about how many proteins would be in there that aren't doing anything all the time. Like it would be absurd. So there was a, there's a researcher uh, from LSU, uh, Gallagher, mm -hmm. uh, 
tell me about the re tell me about how far his back his research goes and what it was that he was researching that would apply to these coronaviruses. I think this is another thing that I would give most of the credit to um, Charles Rixey for really putting together succinctly um, because Gallag Gallagher was a guy who who started posting about the the origin of the virus very early in 2020 on a rather obscure blog that ended up getting shared on Twitter with certain circles, but you know, didn't make it to the press or anything like that. And the interesting part about Gallagher is, is that he had a, has a professor emeritus position at LSU and him and his son in early 2000s, you'd have to look up exactly, it might've even been 2003, um, started a viral company, virology company. They, it's not really clear what they do, um, but I guess they, they do whatever, because in 2003, 2004, and 2005, while he was still active at LSU, him and a person of interest named Robert Gary um, published a few papers describing, number one, the opening of the spike protein of HIV and the identification of this conformational change, which reveals this hydrophobic tip, um, is, is kind of a shared mechanism that is not only present in HIV, but also in coronaviruses. And in that same three-year period, they put out a series of papers describing the, the mechanism of action of this fusion protein and how it works and how it's parallel with AIDS and coronaviruses. And they wax intellectual about it might be, you know, a, a common mechanism among many viruses. And then they, the, in 2003, they actually already patented a short peptide sequence which could interfere with this i believe with the hydrophobic end um, of this glycoprotein in effect um, prevent viral uh, infection and so at that stage that kind of di disappeared they had one official publication and then after that the whole idea of of fusion inhibitory proteins disappeared from the the american literature and coincidentally or not um, the Chinese have no problem with developing um, small protein inhibitors, and they started with that in 2020, and the papers came out pretty consistently since then, all different kinds of labs developing inhibitor proteins, which are designed to irreversibly interfere with either the, the receptor binding domain, or usually it's, it's something to do with the hinge already open and, and, and interacting with the, with the hydrophobic part. Okay, so let me let me see let me slow this down here. Let me see if I can uh, repeat this back to you and tell me um, uh, how how correctly or incorrectly I get this. Um, we can put together a few amino acids to make this uh, smaller chain. We've got this this larger protein, but we can put together this smaller chain, call it a peptide or, or a uh, small protein, and and we can we could design these to put them in the body and go and interact with the protein in such a way that maybe changes the open versus closed state, maybe keeps it locked in position uh, to make it less harmful, or could interfere with the ability of the protein to help get the virus into the cell. It, 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 do I have this right? They, they, yeah, that, that's correct. Technology yep. that has been under development for 20 years, at least. Yeah, and think about it for from the perspective of what, it, what those published papers sell it as a very a potential universal viral inhibitor. So, and, and, and uh, the, the papers that come after that also imply a nasal version of it to, again, you would want that protein to be in your mucus. So it would, that's the, also the interesting thing about it is that, that from a, 
a countermeasures perspective and a, and a bio weapons perspective or bio influence perspective, whatever you want to call it, you're going to want to have some way of your, your people being relatively sure they're not going to have a problem with this. And one of the best ways that before the pandemic that was talked about would be monoclonal antibodies. You just give your guys monoclonals, they go in and, and for 15 days, they're fine. And you drop the, the virus in ahead of time and the whole village is sick. And then you come out and you, your antibodies are gone, but you never really got exposed and it's all good. Um, that's how or it works. We're against theory. a compromised opponent. Right. Where you that's have an antidote. Theory. This, this, we're, we're essentially talking about an antidote. Yeah, but we're, that's how it works in theory. But the problem is you can't give somebody monoclonals and not activate their immune system. And you can't expose them to a virus with monoclonal protection and not have it interact with their immune system. So that doesn't work. It, it, it's a good idea and they've investigated it, but it doesn't work. And I think, and Charles thinks that small protein inhibitors are one of those one of those more likely technologies that maybe went off the map on purpose because they they were developing it and they were developing it as a countermeasure that could be used. But and maybe they have developed it. Maybe they have developed it. I mean, it's it's quite long ago. And and again, if you look at the number of papers that have come out from other countries, not from American labs, but from other countries and especially China, it is an idea that everyone is well aware of. And so um, this is also. Uh, not necessarily the same as a nasal vaccine, which is also something that I think in the end, if there's a technology that's going to augment your immune system in a meaningful way, it's going to have to hit a barrier of infection and where the immune system is organized correctly. So it's going to be a skin thing or, or a, more likely an oral vaccine, but I just don't think it's necessary. So don't don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we need it. I don't think it'll work, but it certainly can't work if they keep doing it. I am and transfecting people, that will never work. So, but if I'm understanding you correctly, there is some degree of this technology which should very well be available at this point. Uh, am I am I conflating two things or, be, and if so- It's just hard why... to imagine that it's not. You see, that's the right. thing. Why else would they have stopped? The, the paper that came out in 2006 sells it as an inhibitor for both HIV and coronavirus. There's a couple papers that acknowledge that these kinds of things have a universal application. So why in the world would we stop working on them? But they just so, stopped. So Occam's razor is there. There's not profit in it, but is that, is or it that had a more potential use. It had a better potential use. I mean, the, 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 at the same time, you have to remember that these, that's another thing that I do on my stream a lot. And I think you have to, everybody needs to acknowledge that in 2009, there is a documented history among the Western nations that that the WHO, in cahoots with a couple pharmaceutical companies, leveraged bids on pre-pandemic flu virus vaccine numbers and, and promises to purchase and instigated and got governments to sign contracts where they agreed to buy vaccine if the WHO declared a pandemic and then the WHO declared a pandemic and they bought those vaccines and people were damaged and the WHO probably shouldn't have declared a pandemic. And, and Germany was one of the few countries that fought back against it in any way and they tried best to just make it all disappear. But that legal fiasco is real. They really did that. They had contracts and they went to governments and they said, you know, Denmark has bought 11 million doses and Germany's bought 20 million doses. And so if you don't order enough, 
by the time Britain and France have put their order in, there might not be enough. We might not be able to produce enough for you. So they leverage the idea of shortage also to get all of these countries to commit to way more doses than they knew they could ever roll out. And Belgium, all these countries bought immediately, like immediately on the first case they had, they did it. And it's crazy how greased these wheels have been and how how they have without a doubt been trying to 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 adjust this this kind of operation i mean they've they've given talks about it that i've covered on my stream where so they for years describe it for years they were organizing a system that would create an artificial scarcity while negotiating these contracts for vaccines prior to the pandemic that would trigger the contracts and even worse, Matthew, and that's what's also at play here, it was a worst-case scenario kind of contract. If it's a flu that kills 10%, then you need to have this many people get vaccinated. And that's the; those are the numbers they used to start this one as well. If this is a – the New York Times was saying between 12 and 16, the R-naught factor is, you know, like it was going to blaze through us and we were all going to be simultaneously in our beds. And it, it – it's just it's shocking to me the at from especially two and a half years from the beginning of this thing it's shocking to me how few of these cornerstones of the narrative have yet to be broken they're still supporting everything on television with the same yeah the same when, nonsense. when I started to realize there was a likelihood that SARS-CoV-2 had been around longer than we were told um I remember when Omicron hit and Omicron hit, and it was like two days later, it had visited every discotheque in Europe, right? It, it, it was just boom. It was, it was not just spreading rapidly. It was all over the world within like a week, right? Well, it, it, this, this feels very, very suspicious. Um, well, and, and, and isn't that now, correct me if I'm wrong, happening again with monkeypox? Where mm -hmm. suspiciously, in a way where I and I'm no epidemiologist, I'm no scientist of any kind, but I feel like it's a pretty basic premise that a virus can only, especially one that's not as virulent as any coronavirus, that is transmitted in with a very specific set of symptoms and physical touch. And how is it that the, and I bring it up, the WHO is reconvening next week. They're probably going to declare it a pandemic. So how can like, at least if it's just one and it's a particularly novel and yeah, maybe it's it, let's say it is 100 percent sure souped up in a lab. It's easy for the layperson to understand in theory how that might just show up everywhere. Maybe if we're being very, 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 very generous. But then that's kind of undermined if the same situation repeats with an entirely different, not at all related virus like immediately afterwards i don't know it undermines both viruses i think or at least the narrative undermining uh, underlying them i mean there's so much to unpack there because you're right yeah. of course but you know the 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 narrative is so packed with nonsense that they even had a monkeypox simulation about a year and a half ago and so it's it's kind of absurd at this stage that 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 we even debate about this stuff but but really your point is is essentially the point that I'm trying to make that there is a there is a well constructed well oiled machine that is designed to go into to motion when the who declares a pandemic and then those wheels grind and turn because these governments are queued in to feed fuel into the machine and that fuels money 
And so when that money's available, people are going to come and get it. And people are going to claim to be following the grant proposals and the directives of the who in order to get that money. And that's what's happening, I think, to just to just be the the broad kind of storyteller that I think is required sometimes. I think that 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 just the amount of control that is granted when we declare a a an emergency under the PREP Act, the amount of control that, that is currently being exerted over us by the health and homeland security person is extraordinary. And and what that's also translating to all these other governments using it as an excuse to do so is extraordinary. And I, I don't know how else to to try to wake people up other than to try and bring them to understand all of these layers you have to understand the molecular biology enough to know that they've been that they've been bamboozling and you have to understand the recent history enough to know that they've been bamboozling you about that and you have to understand the the legal environment in which we are trapped to understand why they have a motivation to extend these these emergency scenarios because they are able to do all kinds of things in closed rooms and make decisions in in closed rooms and that's the i was talking to my wife on the way here when we were walking the dog and you know the message that that giga ohm is really all about started at this youtube video that i have that's like compound bows motorcycles and something else and in that video i'm standing in a camp camouflage jacket in front of a waterfall screaming at the top of my lungs because i think that the camera can't hear me and i'm saying that you know if you don't think that it's crazy that you can teach yourself to fix your car or fix your motorcycle if you don't think it's crazy that you can teach yourself to sight a 30-06 if you don't think you're it's crazy that you can teach yourself to to tune a compound bow that pulls back with 70 pounds of pressure then for me, it's not really crazy to think that somebody could sit down and learn the basics of the biology that underlie our immune response to a coronavirus, that underlie our understanding of, of how pharmaceuticals work, our understanding of what seroprevalence means and doesn't mean and why that's significant, to understand what transfection is and why it's different than immunization. And all of these things are little tidbits of an adult taking the responsibility for understanding his or her world so that they can navigate through it freely without obstruction. And right now, we seem to default to the, I can't possibly understand this, so I'll just take their word for it. And that's- I, been, I love this. That I has been this. done this to is... us on, on, a, on, a, on a global level, on a, on a government level, on a community level. Everybody has defaulted to, I can't figure this out, so I'm going to leave it to I, them. I love this. You know, actually, I, I think that, that over the years, more people were beginning to understand how much they could teach themselves, partially because of like the, the video sharing platforms, right? Um, how, you know- who hasn't gotten on video sharing platforms to learn how to do something or to learn how to a hundred things, to learn how to do a hundred things. And, and this, um, this brings me back to this idea um, that I've been bothered by during the entire pandemic. And is part of the reason that made me sit up and take note, which is, which is the way they've gone after this feels like a fire hose of information, right? Um, you're inundated with so much information that it interferes with that process of calmly sitting down and learning what you can about things. People just don't have infinite time. And with that, I would like to share a clip that um, that perhaps the, the two of you have seen, but uh, I'm going to play for everybody um, who may not have heard this yet. This goes back to October of 2020, and this, this bothers me a lot. Oops. Come on, baby. 
You gotta turn up the volume on that one. Underneath it. Okay. Uh, did you hear what she said? No, yeah, play that one more time from the top. Sure. Use of an investigation of COVID-19 vaccine under an EOA is not subject to informed consent requirements. Not subject to informed consent requirements. Wow. Dude, I've never seen that before. I hadn't seen it until, uh, until just this week or last wow, few days. Wow, good catch. Um, wow, somebody Truth else there. caught it. Mm. Yeah. But that's from October 2020, isn't it? Yeah. It's it. Yeah, there you go, October 22. And you know why that would be, right? Can you read it already? I can see it already why that would be. Because if they were using a biotechnology that they were also using as a as a as a dual use thing, then it would have proprietary proprietary parts of it that they couldn't reveal in a informed consent situation. You see? Well, so that, that may be the excuse. That, way. that may and be the excuse, but then that excuse can be leveraged to um, to justify uh, you know all the misinformation campaigns coming from official sources. I don't I don't disagree with you. I think it's terrifying that this is in there. I just would like to see. Yeah. Okay. I have to I have to forward this to my buddy. This is crazy. Wow. That, that I did seems not know admissible that. in court. <laughs> That's insane. I did not know that. That is very significant. And it's, you know, it, it could potentially undermine everything that I said in the FDA comment, because if informed consent requirements as as a judge would would see them are, are not. But that seems super. That, that seems super uh, vulnerable to attack from the perspective of precedence, especially if you go Nuremberg, you go Helsinki, you go. Belfort Declaration. If you go, all these uh, bioethics documents are agreeing on this and uh, the definition of informed consent, and that it must be honored from the perspective of humans. Then it's very difficult for me to see how this would would live up to legal scrutiny. It's a question of what case would you get to be able to go there. That's significant language, though, dude. I got to get the original of that and make sure I I get the PDF down because that's that's significant. And they have made factual statements or they've they've made firm statements, uh, uh, I think, kind of throughout that attest. No, we are, in fact, providing informed consent. And everyone who's given this is, you know, has, has even firmly this, authorized. This would even protect the FD or the, the PCR tests from scrutiny then as well, because they don't need to tell you what they've done. <clears throat> well, and, and anything else authorized under EUA, right? Paxlovid, uh, Molnipiravir, um uh, I think even technically aren't the masks uh, that are, are, I think they're also un under some kind of EUA, regardless, yeah, it's not just the vaccines. I think it's a couple of days ago, they actually made it possible for, um, for uh, pharmacists to give out packs a little bit on their own. They don't need to yes. consult with the doctor. That's right. Which is pretty impressive. Um, uh, that's essentially wow. over the counter then, right? That's over the counter because yeah. Because that's what over the counter is. You go to the you, pharmacist. You can't you get hydroxychloroquine over the counter, which has been used a hundred billion times. Exactly. But you can go straight to Pax 
Paxlovid, which is is a barely tested product, uh, well tested and, and with issues. Known mutagen, beautiful. <clears throat> but ivermectin's horse paste, so don't be a conspiracy theorist, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and you know, watching videos like that, one of the things that's that's good about is, you know going back and seeing the past of what led up to now is it enables you to um, to question all of these things without. Uh, having to put on a, a tinfoil hat, we don't have to be particularly speculative about the fact that they have changed um, the way the system is working from the way that we would expect it to work. That it that it fundamentally, you know, it, it's a shift in reality for us in dealing with this. Um, so, you know, since, since we have a few minutes left, I want to go back and 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 ask um, another question about uh, that involves coronavirus engineering and evolution. And I, I just want to I want to give you a few minutes to uh, share your perspective. Um, so when Omicron came out, um, there was this this suggestion that that all of these different mutations it, it, it there's a lot of mutations in the spike protein. Um, it, is it like you know forty or fifty or fifty or something like that? Like twenty of them um, seem to be related to what you might think of as immune evasion. That were um, that specifically helped the virus avoid uh, AMG antibodies, uh, three different antibody types at least, and and you know that that piqued my curiosity. But then I, I saw the the different trees that people tried to put together, and putting together uh, phylogenetic trees is not a perfect science, right? Uh, it's something where we try to do our best to fit it together, but these trees look so far apart, like there's this long branch reach far away at, at this one location. And I want to discuss that because it would seem to imply, you know, uh, that these viruses might have been created approximately five years ago or something like that. But first, you know, have we ever seen a virus just mutate so wildly in an AIDS patient that it just completely changed the game all over the world? Um, well, that's certainly what Trevor Bedford and the CDC want us to believe, that the, that the only place that the virus can make significant changes of this kind are in an, in an extended infection in an immunocompromised person with the idea that they put imperfect immune pressure on the virus. And because the virus is replicating for a long time, it by definition changes. When it goes into a healthy person, there's this sharp peak, and so there's a limited amount of time for the virus to change. And I think that's an inadequate way of thinking about the virus simply because uh, the way that you infect someone is kind of like a, a selection process in and of itself. It's a sieve. Um, and, and one of the best pieces of information that I think everybody should have in their imagination, it's, it's tough to describe what I have in my head, but I do have a very working sort of model of how some of these systems work and i can at least see the flow chart in my head it's something that i i drew a lot of this stuff when i was in college and so i have this created this drawing based architecture in my mind that i can imagine how these systems are working and for me the thing that that stands out the most here with respect to this question is the the way that that the immune system responds to the viral infection is one of of minimum and the way that it responds to the transfection is one of almost maximum because there's trillions of proteins infect, transfecting you 
So when I said that last thing, I kind of lost what the question was. I'm sorry, but I there was a thought that pumped in my head and I had to say it. So I said it out loud. But can you get me back on track again? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so, so, well, it, ha, has there ever been a case where we have seen a substantial mutation of a virus? Uh, in, oh, yeah, in, that's, that's right. Yeah. So, so that's good because really, sorry, thanks. That's all I needed. The, the, the flu virus changes very differently because it has these these different segments of the genome, which can be swapped during an infection. So when you co-infect with multiple flu viruses, then those flu viruses, when they're when they're replicating, can essentially reassort the parts of the genome. Now, this is relevant to understand because this reassortment, repackaging could, of course, also, it's another way that the, the viral thing can go wrong. And if I were... Am I still sharing my screen? Yeah. So if 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 I if I try to emphasize this, every time the virus is copied, the TV would like you to believe, the TV would like you to believe that that's a virtually error-free process, and that most of the time we just make perfect viruses, and then they squirt out, and the cell that's replicating them is just squirting them out like a printer, and the viruses all go out and they infect other cells, but. I saw an interview with none other than Robert Malone in early 2020 with a blonde girl from the UK on Rumble that called herself a naturopath. And that's all the, the information I can give you. He was still webcamming from his couch or his futon with this, with this picture in the background. That was his original background. And um, in this interview, Robert Malone said something that he's never said again, but has completely transformed the way that 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 was why I was talking about the model of this infection is in my head and see if it does it to you too, if you don't have this in your head. But what Robert Malone said was that the vast majority of the viral particles that are produced during a viral infection do not result in replication because they have too many errors in them. They are not fully formed. They don't have enough spike protein on the outside. Their RNA polymerase is broken. They're missing a protein. And so when they go to the next cell, they actually aren't able to do anything except provoke the immune system as an immunogen. So they can circulate through the lymph and they can bind to B cells and activate them. They can circulate through the lymph and get cleaned up by dendritic cells and the dendritic cells can present them. But what they don't do is result in more infection. And that's one of the reasons why a coronavirus infection is not that virulent. Because the vast majority, or at least a significant majority of the population of those viruses is not replication competent. It's they're, like mannequins that are missing arms and legs. Exactly. So they're, they're not going to make people and run around and do. Exactly. Now, so imagine that you could you could extract all the viral particles, but only 60% of these are, are capable of replicating. Doesn't that change significantly then? the task that your that your immune system needs to battle against because not all of these are enemies then some of these are just garbage so if you overemphasize the wrong protein in a 60% garbage can then you're really going to have a problem when this thing shows up but if you're able to develop a, a a orchestra of 10 or 12 cell types and put them in different parts of where you think this infection is going to occur and then screen those epitopes for the ones that matter the most, your immune system is not going to respond to the spike protein. It's going to respond to the end protein. It's going to respond to the uh, RNA-dependent RNA polymerase. But that that fact, 
that not all the viruses are perfect, that this is a cartoon. This does not adequately describe the kind of stochastic process that's occurring when the virus is being replicated at high speed while hijacking a sort of imperfect hijacking of your of your regular of your regular functioning proteome. And the proteome is fighting back, and the proteome is still trying to make its own proteins. And so there's an imperfect process that's going on is that it's not like everybody just stops and gets out of the way and then the virus gets to go do, 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 okay so do, let, do, let me rewind this tell, tell me if i've got this right so it looks like sars-cov-2 and sars-omicron i'm just going to call it sars-omicron I, I i don't feel like um we need to call it a variant or anything like that i, I think that's a, a low probability chance but it looks like these two viruses are about you know a little bit over 10 years apart evolutionarily um, that, that may be imprecise because you never know exactly what um, constraints um, you know, they, they, they've gone through to get that far apart. But they, it looks like they probably split from a similar tree on the order of five years ago. Now, now what we have is this claim that, they, that Omicron would probably just emerge from one single HIV patient. We've never, so far as I can tell, I haven't had anybody give me a response yet, but we've never seen a virus undergo the substantial mutation that would look like years of evolution in, in one person. Um, that seems nonsensical, but then you're also giving us mechanistic reasons why that is unlikely to be the case. That's correct. And I think the other one that we've talked about already in the, in the, in the interview is the, the background level of, of SARS viruses. And so if there is a background level of, of related SARS viruses, and then we have, you know, transfected, let's say 6 million people biased to a single um, protein in this proteome, then it's not unexpected that the virus would behave and, 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 excuse me, the viral swarm would behave in very particular ways. And that would mean that all of these rare variants that make up the 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 background cloud of of SARS coronaviruses that's on the background cloud of human coronaviruses those four then what we're now doing is artificially amplifying what was already a very rare and and not very competitive virus most likely pulling that portion of the swarm into the evolutionary grinder and that's what's dangerous is because one came along with with amplifying this background noise, which was probably Omicron. And there are other viruses in the background that are background noise now that we might select for later as we, you know, if we, an Omicron specific bivalent vaccine might select for another background rarity that will bring with it a, a unique selection of the other 21 genes. And every time we pull up one of these background uh, rarities we're risking amplifying the presence of it in the swarm and 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 if you think about it like this chaotic thing um then it doesn't really matter we don't, we don't know what's going to come in the future but we definitely don't want to direct it in a way that we know won't be good and we know from a lot of previous literature and a lot of lab work and a lot of veterinary work that coronaviruses are really easy to push in the viral virulence direction um with an imperfect immunization they, they go that way a lot um, and so that's really not to our benefit. And, and so that's, I think, the most crucial thing to understand right now is that we are, we are doing what we have already identified with previous experimentation as specifically wrong. We don't want to do this. Um, HIV changed um, when we immunized against specific proteins. And there are videos of Fauci explaining how 
we thought that immunizing to the E protein would work, but then the, the, the HIV mutates so fast. Well, yeah, I mean, that's how it works. And so <laughs> it's an accurate impression. You put pressure on it in one place, it squeaks out. I mean, it's that easy. So it's, it's, uh, it's tricky because this is so obviously basic evolutionary biology that it's, it, it's, it sort of boggles the mind that when people outright deny that, that, that this could be a mechanism, never mind a primary one. Well, it, it, it takes some time to think about when I, when I realized what the, the swarm was, when I began to think about it, it became more clear to me that, that these parts, you know, all, all these different virus, you know, versions that are around are, are different from each other and they can be fairly different. You know, maybe you have H cove in there with SARS cove, you know, I, I don't, I don't even know if that's how it works, but I'm just, you know, throwing that out there, you know, maybe there, maybe some of them are only 70% similar to others. And you begin going in and, and trying to squash out some, you know, is it just like putting your hand in water where the rest of it just moves around it and takes the, the place of the space in the swarm? That well, that's there. where I think in which that's case, where I... There, there's absolutely no point in ever trying to vaccinate for coronaviruses in particular. It is some viruses that we're able to vaccinate for and nobody and nobody in public health ever says this it's like they're not allowed to but but once you get the model down it just seems obvious this is not yes. the same not not all viruses are the same i would completely agree with you and then let me go all the way back to where we started which was discussing this hypothetical model of a spike protein based vaccine that you would build in a laboratory so the the most dangerous aspect of this idea would be as follows imagine that coronaviruses actually can exchange their subgenomic rnas as easily as as flu does now the flu virus people will have you believe that this is just a convenient little thing um will have you believe that inside of a flu virus are these rings of of dna and they're separate and so when the virus the vaccine or the virus excuse me opens its genome and it lets it out into your cells these loops of of RNA are going to float around independently and they're going to be translated independently and then they'll be packaged independently. So the idea is that if you if you're infected by more than one kind of flu virus with more than one assortment then that assortment reassorts in the infected cell. So the the thing that happens with coronaviruses I almost lost my train of thought but I didn't. The thing that happens with coronaviruses is instead of having this which is already pre-existing separate pieces of RNA. They have subgenomic RNA sequences that when the virus first starts to replicate, it makes a double-stranded copy of its DNA, or sorry, RNA, and then it opens it and it starts to copy it, but it copies it into segments. And it makes lots of copies of those segments that encode all of the non-structural proteins, including the stuff we've been talking about before, the helicase and the the, the transcription complex, they all have these different proteins. And so all of those are made into subgenomic RNAs, which are then translated. Those subgenomic RNAs, as far as we know, are not packaged into new viruses, are not part of that sorting process. But it's very easy to conceive a scenario, and that's where this Moderna patent in the virus comes in, it's easy to conceive a scenario that when you are replicating the virus in the double strand, the, the, the viral genome in the double stranded RNA form, the RNA polymerase could accidentally jump from the genomic RNA to a subgenomic RNA that's just sitting next to it. 
And if you were, for example, in the in this this paper that that found the Moderna sequence and it, it found a sequence of um, MSH3, which is one of the proteins which regulates DNA repair, and this is a protein that Duke University has a patent on to use to um, enable the infection of influenza virus in culture. So if you if you overexpress MSH3 in a human cell culture, they become vulnerable to uh, influenza virus infection. It would allow you to culture more virus. It might even allow you to find more coronaviruses when you screen a particular sample because they will be more vulnerable to coronavirus. Anyway, because of the way a coronavirus replicates and it needs to go from double-stranded RNA, the same thing would apply if you were using a culture where you were overexpressing a human gene to enable the culture to be infected, that human gene would be present in RNA form and it could jump over or it could sew it in. And if it sewed it in, then you would have this MSH3 gene with a human furin cleavage site exactly where it is right now. And it would have just happened because you were using this overexpression of this gene in all your cultures all the time. And one time you got unlucky. Now, do I think that's true? Probably not. I think more likely what this is, is a, it's a plausible out. We didn't mean to do it. It just happened. But they have it in their patent and they have it in their grant applications that they know that furin cleavage sites have this specific interest and they know that there are species-specific furin cleavage sites. So they knew that putting a human cleavage site in there would be handy. And so the idea that this happened by accident is preposterous in my mind, but I really feel as though this paper that came out, this MSH3 paper, has to be viewed as a, with some skepticism in the sense of why, does it provide um, plausible deniability more than anything else? Because again, the, the odds of it happening are so, so ridiculous because it has to integrate exactly as it integrated and and that would really only be done by design in my humble opinion because it, if it integrated anywhere else in the viral genome by accident it would have no effect at all and it might even delete something that would make the whole culture fail so it it feels like a plausible out it feels like somebody is giving them an out to say that well we meant well and since it's a countermeasure and it was an emergency and we weren't sure how far the emergency was going to go we did what we thought was best even if it ended up you know, transfecting millions of people that didn't need to be transfected. When in doubt, lead to emergency. I think that's the lesson that I've learned over the last two years. But um, we, uh, we've, we've gone a little over what was planned, and there's a really good reason for that, which is this was one of the most interesting conversations I've ever been a part of. So thank you so much for, for joining us, Jay. Um, definitely a lot to, uh, to, to chew on. It, it sounds like more questions. <clears throat> excuse me, more questions than answers. So I suppose as a final thought, what is a question you'd want to leave with people? What question wow. should they be asking? Pressure. That's pressure. Well, that, what they should be asking is, is what has their immune system already learned? Um, and, and whether or not your immune system has already learned all that it needs to know. And, and more importantly, whether or not your immune system has anything to learn from a transfection from Pfizer and Moderna, because that's really all they're offering you, is that something that your immune system can't learn on its own, but Pfizer and Moderna can teach your immune system, and whether you believe that sales pitch after hearing some of the stuff that we've covered here, and maybe after visiting me at Giga Biological and following Rounding the Earth. I think that's a good way to end it.
That is a good way to end it. So this is your website, gigaohmbiological.com. Where else can people find you? Uh, uh, um, I'm on Twitter. Yep, I'm on Twitter as uh, at uh, JJCOUEY, just all the letters. And um, there's this YouTube channel, JC on a Bike, that as soon as the second strike is gone again, I'll probably start streaming there as well. I'm still trying to learn how to avoid that algorithm, but I seem to trigger them all the time. That seems to be Thanks changing so much, all the time, JJ. Too. Every time we talk, I learn uh, something new uh, or, or a few things. I, I really, really appreciate coming back. If you ever have somebody that wants to argue or, or set me straight on something, I'm sure you'll get get feedback like that. And I'm, I'm happy to do it because I don't consider myself an expert. I just consider myself a good reader with an open mind. And so this is where I've gotten. Yeah, uh, yeah, we, we will definitely keep you in mind for uh, panel discussions uh, where we might want uh, multiple perspectives working on something together. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Cool. Thank you, guys. That's what science is. Thanks, Jay. We'll see you later. Okay, Matthew. Well, this has been yet another good show. I'd say we're two for two on the awesome scale. Yeah, uh, JJ definitely tips the awesome scale. <laughs> Um, well, and it, it, uh, it's only uh, going to get even more tipped in the awesome direction because we've got guests uh, on all sorts of topics lined up um, for several months, I think, uh, including ones that uh, are this close to being booked. So I'm looking forward to it. And um, yeah, thanks again, Matthew. Yeah, uh, um, uh, real quick, just, for, um, just to let people know, um, topics are going to change. We're not going to talk about the pandemic all the time. Next week, we're, we're having... Uh, uh, Joel Smalley and potentially another guest on to discuss cryptocurrency uh, solutions and, and how the technology may evolve to change over the next few years. And uh, and then in a couple of weeks, we're going to have Tessa Lina and Riley, who goes by Edward uh, Slavsquat on, on um, uh, Substack. We're going to have them on answering the question, what is Russia? Hmm. Yes. What is science? What is Russia? There's a lot of what is themes, which I think is sort of the overall point. Yeah, maybe we'll discuss Russia and the Russia. Mm, mm, the, yeah, the Russian bear that one may or may not want to poke. Um, all right. Uh, cool. Thanks again, Matthew. I will do a quick plug for you. Is there anything? Actually, I wanted to, um, I wanted to pull up uh, Rounding the Earth um, because you've, you've had some very interesting articles in particular in the last little bit. Uh, did your inter your investigation forced the DOD to stop publishing that data? Well, I don't see another reason that they would stop publishing it other than the fact that I pointed out that their database snapshots had changed for their health database. So it'll be interesting to see if they just publish it late. But uh, their, their latest issue was kind of sparse in the medical surveillance monthly reports. So um, looks like they're dodging wanting to talk about it. And I think it's because they went in and manipulated the database a second time to jack up the, the number of R code uh, ambulatory reports. And that, that's going to show up in their stats. Well, I guess the good news is you have a fan at the Department of Defense. That's pretty cool. <laughs> um, so to find out more about what the heck we're talking about, go to roundingtheearth.substack.com. Subscribe to the newsletter there. Uh, become a paid member if you want to support the show. It'll help us continue doing these live shows as well. And um, yeah, subscribe to us here on Rumble and on Odyssey and on YouTube. And the videos are uh, uh, going up on BitChute as well for preservation purposes. So I will now say bye to Matthew and then do a final farewell. Um, I have been Liam Sturgis, your host of this Rounding the Earth Roundtable podcast. Um, 
I learned a lot. I hope you guys did too. And uh, look forward to seeing you this Friday for the second Rounding the News uh, News Roundup with Rounding the Earth. And this should be uh, another very exciting week. Some crazy things have already occurred. Thank you all so much for watching. There's been more viewers on this one than any of the episodes so far. Um, you guys are awesome. And you're the reason why we're able to continue uh, doing such things like this and keep these conversations going. And uh, thank you again. We'll see you on Friday. Mm -hmm.